to Stand to Reasons, hashtag Podcast. I'm Amy Hall, and I'm here with Greg Kokel, and we're here to answer your questions that you send on Twitter with the hashtag SDRask, hence the name of the show. And also, I should throw out there, if you enjoy this show, pass it on to someone else today. We could actually double our entire <laughs> listening audience if you did that. So if you're enjoying it, let somebody else know. We'd love to increase our uh, the number of people listening, and if you enjoy it, there you go. All right, Greg. All right, ready? Amy. Yep. Thank you. I have a couple questions on the Trinity this morning. So let's start with one from Jason Clark. Got to be three questions if it's going to be on the Trinity. <laughs> couple. That's, that's a heresy. <laughs> oh, man. I should have waited till I found a third one. But I'm sorry, Greg. We only have two on that. All today. right. All right. Jason Clark asks, is modalism slash oneness Pentecostalism a heresy that prevents followers from being saved? If so, what is it that is spiritually fatal to salvation? Is it just as fatal to those who hold to modalism, to modalism but don't know it's a heresy? Well, it's an interesting question. Modalism is the view that uh, there is one God who is only one person, but manifests himself in three different modes. So in the Old Testament, he manifested himself as the Father. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, as the Son, and in uh, the Church Age, as the Spirit. So it is similar when people use the illustration of uh, um, one man can be both a father and a brother and a son at the same time, you know, a brother to a sister, a father to his kids, and a son to his father, own father, parents. Uh, that is also an illustration of modalism. Uh, water that can be either ice or water, or, I mean, liquid or uh, gas. So a lot of these illustrations that people use to describe the Trinity uh, turn out to be descriptions, very good descriptions of a heretical view and established as such um, by the early church as they work through these issues. Um, and we know that modalism as an understanding of, of who God is is false. And the reason is, if God is in the mode of Jesus— um, when Jesus is on the earth, then to whom is Jesus talking when he prays? You see the Father speaking at his baptism, you see the Holy Spirit descending. Uh, you, you don't have three modes operating at the same time. Um, at least that's not what's depicted there. These are distinct. And then you have Jesus talking to the Father in the garden and praying at other times. Um, and so you, you, modalism is simply false. Um now, the question that's being raised, now we have a foundation of the idea there, is why is it so critical? And uh, the, the reason is, is because um, there's a couple of passages that I'll, I'll mention. Uh, one, most obviously, I think, is in John chapter 4, where Jesus said that the Father must be worshipped in spirit, or God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Okay, so having a right and accurate notion about God is really important. I mean, if you think about the gods that were available to worship in the Old Testament, uh, the ancient Near East, there were lots of them. Baal, Ashtaroth, Molech, uh, etc., etc. And um, God said, you can't worship them. Now, one could say, hey, well, if there's 
if there is only one God, and that isn't what the people of the ancient Near East believed. This was a clarification that God brought to the Jews. But if there is only one God, then what does what difference does it make? What name we use or the, the how we describe them? Well, God, God did um, care about the distinctions. In fact, when it, I think in the in in the Book of Exodus where the Ten Commandments are given, it says when He says, "Just worship Me." Um, he gives some characteristics for I visit the uh, the iniquities of the of the um, wicked on the, to the third and fourth generation, but but show faithfulness to the thousands of generations. So he's kind of characterizing something about himself that's really important. Okay, um, I understand that this is an unusual passage for people. They kind of wonder what he's talking about. But let me set that aside for the moment and just simply say that he is telling us something about the nature of the true God. Worship this true God, not another, okay? And when God continues to reveal himself uh, progressively through Scripture and his plan, we get more and more of a, a more robust understanding of what God is like, okay? Now, in the New Testament, we get a whole bunch more details. The reason, uh, and I never thought about this before, but I think it was our friend Fred Sanders that pointed this out. The reason that the Trinity isn't revealed in the Old Testament is 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 because, or the details. Of course, the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. It's a word that was um, Tertullian, I think, in the late second century uh, adopted the word to describe something that was actually in the New Testament. The reason we don't have more of that is because it was only in the New Testament time that the, that God in his various persons entered into unique activities that were appropriate to the new covenant, right? So now you've got the Son made flesh, who dwelt among us, who John says was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. Uh, and apart from him, nothing came in. So he's the uncreated creator. So there's the divine characteristic right there in the first three verses of John of this one called the Word. Well, why is this distinct now? Because now we have the Word becoming a human being and dwelling among us and revealing the Father and, uh, and then being the Lamb of God. All right, who initiates the new covenant, which new covenant is a covenant of the Spirit. And now the Spirit is given through regeneration as part of this promised covenant that is is different than the old covenant, which they broke. Jeremiah 31, 31 and following describes that. So, um, so now we have this new revelation of who God is. And, as, and it was Jesus who said, Worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So these kinds of details matter, and this mattered to the early church. We've got to get Jesus right. The first big um, controversy, actually, or the first big issue <clears throat> that the the church at large dealt with, and this was after the Jerusalem Council, which had to do with the issue of grace. We see that in Acts chapter 15. But the big extra-biblical council, the first one is the Council of Nicaea. And this was all about, what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Son of God? They knew they had to get this right. Is he, is he homoousius or is homoousis or whatever? I'm not, I'm not so good on the Greek, but the point is, just the difference of a diphthong was indicating whether he was like God or he was God, of a similar essence or of the same essence. And that was, the, the you know, as one put it at the time, the whole empire is is divided on a diphthong. Well, the, that's because it mattered. 
and then later on it in and uh other other um uh councils um like the Chalcedonian Council, for example, and, and others, uh, Ephesus. This is a clarifying more and more and more about who is this Jesus. So who Jesus was is really critical. Jesus said in John 8, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, um, I am he, well, well, that would be the Messiah, right? Well, that certainly is included there. But in that whole passage, Jesus is identifying himself with the, the with the eternal name of God, I am, and uh, this is what upset the leaders and caused them to want to uh, murder Jesus. So, as we go through the text and we look at the history of the church, we see in both cases that the having precision about who Jesus was and who God is has always been important, okay? Now, when it comes to this this particular concern uh, called um, modalism, and oneness Pentecostalism teaches this as doctrine. Well, if they teach it as doctrine, then that group is not Christian, the word Christian means something in particular, um, and it entails a certain understanding about God and Jesus. And the first, the most foundational understanding that the church squared away was Trinitarianism, and spent a couple of councils kind of refining that. Um, if you read the, the conclusions, you can see it's almost tedious the way they describe it, because they care so much about understanding this correctly. Um, so oneness Pentecostalism isn't Christian. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean I'm saying that they're bad people in generally, or even that they're wrong. I'm saying they're not Christian. Okay, I do think they're wrong, but uh, but to say that they're not Christian, all that means is is that they don't comport with the normal, ordinary, common definition of what a Christ, what Christianity is. And that's why Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christian. That's why Mormons are not Christian. In the classical sense, we've always used the word, and to use the word Christian to describe them is misleading. All right, they're a separate religion. They have a different under, they have a different Jesus. Okay, now I want to make a distinction here, Amy, between a formal heresy and a, a material er heresy. <clears throat> a formal heresy is when you state something that, as stated, is actually heretical. And so, modalism, as stated, is a heretical view. Now, there are people who will use illustrations like I just described that are illustrations of modalism but they don't they're not really committed to modalism so it's 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 they're formally mistaken but it's not a material distinction that is really clear in their own mind they're just confused okay if a person in a material way in a adopts consciously the formal understanding of modalism, then they have separated themselves from Christianity. They believe in a different Jesus than the Scripture describes, okay? And that's serious. So, uh, but there are a lot of people, and maybe even in one of the Pentecostal churches. I mean, for goodness sake, Amy, we know—think of all the people in Christian churches, good, solid Christian churches, who can't give you any characterization of the Trinity at all except for three and one which is true as far as it goes, but they have no sophisticated, clear understanding of what's entailed. And this is why, because of that, they have no protection against uh, um, formal falsehood when it comes to God. Uh, if they are fully taken in on this and they hold to this view contrary to the um, 
contrary to the classical understanding, then I think this is serious business. I think then there's a problem. But I think there's a lot of people probably in those environs and even in even in uh, you know, evangelical circles, classical Christian circles, who just just don't got it, get it. So it, they they are formally mistaken, but they are not holding to the error in a material fashion, which that would be the problem. So, um, I mean, I, that's the best way I know how to answer that. I, I'm curious on what your response is, though. Well, I like what you said about the persons being involved in salvation in different ways, because that's how it directly affects the whole topic of salvation and gospel. Each of the, the persons were, you know, had a different role. But in terms of knowing the true God, I just want to throw out an example here of the huge difference that this actually makes, because there's the whole issue of who God is in terms of love. A modalistic God is cannot have any sort of loving relationship before creation. Right. So now you have a God who needed to create in order to love. So love isn't an essential part of his nature anymore. Mm-hmm. Now it's something that is added on. And so that that's a huge deal. And I, I just think about something like uh, – I was just – I just pulled up John 17 because Jesus' high priestly prayer is all about – or part of it is all about how God loved him and he wants that love to be in his mm-hmm. followers also. And here's verse 24. Uh, you have you loved me before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. So even if someone were to say, well, he's talking about in the incarnation. Well, this is actually before the foundation of right. the world – the Father loved the Son. Right. I don't know how you make sense of that except in a right. Trinitarian understanding. Yeah. And but by the way, some people might say, well, that's poetic, and, and he knew us before we were created. Well, and so maybe – but that isn't – when you read this passage, the, the level of intimacy with the Father that's expressed there is, is – it, 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 it drives one to properly conclude that Jesus is talking about his preexistence, mm-hmm. the preexistence of the word. Uh, I mean, you, you, you can always say, well, maybe this is a possibility, but what you can't say, this is a possibility, and so it's the right reading simply because it fits your theology. You have to, you have to justify it in the context. Does this seem to be what Jesus is offering? And no, he is, he is a, it, to me, it's a, it's, it's a very difficult passage to, uh, absorb for me, because what is said there is this intimacy and closeness that he had with the Father as the divine word proceeding from the Father from eternity past in the divine nature is the kind of closeness that he prays that we will have with them as well. Mm-hmm. And that's that just blows my mind. I, I can't even comprehend that. And it's not going to happen in an unresurrected body, that's for sure. You know, but uh, but that's what he's asking. That's what he's asking for. So there's a very powerful example there of the pre-existence of the divine Son as a separate person, if you will, center of consciousness um, from the Father. And I'm sure we have. I'm sure there are people listening to this right now that this is news to them. So I encourage you to maybe just read through the New Testament and look for the places where the persons of the Trinity interact with each other, and you'll see that it it treats them as three persons. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a book that I always recommend, Greg, I'm sure I've recommended it on here many times, mm-hmm. is Delighting in the Trinity That's by right. Michael Reeves. Mm-hmm. And in particular, that does talk about the love 
about how love is foundational to God's essence, His character, and that is is something that requires the Trinity and does not work in something like modalism. And lastly, I just want to say because I I think the one of the reasons why they define this as a heresy so early on is because it's so clear in Scripture.、Mm-hmm. If you go through, if you, I think you have to reject Scripture in order to come to a conclusion of oneness. Yeah, like one oneness Pentecostalism,、mm-hmm. the modalistic view. Yeah, I I, I agree, and I I th- I think that. Now, when when people say, "Well, they might be thinking, if it's so clear, then why is there so much confusion?" And、um, this is where I think the concept that I have used as a title to a talk on this, that the Trinity is a solution, not a problem, is so important, because if you take all the passages that give some characterization of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. Wrong order. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Okay, and 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 see what they tell us about God. If you do not have the Trinity, then you have a big problem, because it says there is one God. This is really clear from the very beginning, not just the Ten Commandments, but I mean it's all through there, you know. And、uh, but. You have the Father who is God, and then you have the Son who is God, and the Spirit who is God. So, how could you have that circumstance and 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 communicated without blushing, without a sense of in, incongruity about it? It's because there are three centers of consciousness in the one God. How do we know all that other stuff? Well, because. The, both the Son and the Spirit are called God in the text, and they also ex- they have divine qualities, okay, and they exercise divine prerogatives. For example, Jesus is worshipped, you know. So the, these are the, 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 these are solid reasons why the Trinity is、uh, an appropriate characterization of the biblical record, and、um, and. When you say it's all over, all of those things are all over there. You're right. It's it ought to be very clear, but it、uh, it is a kind of a head scratcher, and this is why it took the church a while to kind of come to terms with how to describe it. But the most common attestation for Jesus in the early church from the very beginning is that Jesus is Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, God. Son, God, who became man and is Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, and there's no other way that the word Lord can be construed when used of Jesus in those contexts. And people called other people Lord all the time, kind of superiors, but that is not the way Jesus is being addressed as the boss man, as the you know, this who's in charge right here. No, he is the Lord, the Lord. Not a Lord, the Lord, and this was a realization very early in the church that pointed to the deity of Christ.、Mm-hmm. So, as a follow-up question to that, here's a question from C for the Truth: Did the early church teach that the Holy Spirit is a person? Is it significant that Paul, Peter, and John do not include the Holy Spirit in greetings to the churches? Um, I. I I don't know that it's significant. I'm just trying to think of this.、Um, 
I, I guess here's the way I'd want to back into answering that question. I don't want to look at the details that were mentioned, the way they don't mention this and the Holy Spirit, whatever. And um, so, therefore, maybe the Holy Spirit isn't divine. No, I, you start with this. What does the text teach about the Holy Spirit? Okay, so Ananias and Sapphira, what is that, Acts 5 or whatever? You have not lied to man, but to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's right in there in the text. So lying to the Spirit is lying to God. Okay, the Spirit is referred to frequently as the Spirit of God. Okay, so we have we have lots of we have references to the Spirit with the same characteristics, divine characteristics, and um, and, and and therefore we have every biblical theological reason to understand the biblical teaching, biblical pneumatology is the deity of the Holy Spirit. However, we okay, not however, but now with that in place, and that's where you've got to start. Then you wonder, well, why didn't Peter and Paul use the Holy Spirit in their declarations of some sort? Well, I know that there's the Tr- Trinitarian declaration is in a number of places, you know, you know, in the Father, Son, and Holy, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, for example, that's the baptismal um, kind of declaration, whatever. Uh, so, but in there are a number of other places where you see that. Why didn't Paul and Peter use it in the, the opening? And I have no idea. But it wasn't because the Spirit wasn't divine, because they taught the Spirit was. So th- this is an, actually there's a side issue here. Do not get derailed by questions you can't answer into thinking something different from what the Scripture actually teaches. Well, why didn't he do this or that or the other thing? You know, I, I don't know. Well, maybe the Holy Spirit is God, isn't God. Yes, he is. Well, how do you know? Because the Scripture says he is. I don't know why Peter and Paul didn't do that. There was another little piece to that question, but it's, I, I think it's, uh, you know, the same kind of thing. How, could you read that ending part? Uh, uh well, it was just about the, did they teach the Holy Spirit as a person, and is it significant that they do not include the Holy Spirit in greetings? No, the the last part that is not significant, no, I don't see any significance whatsoever. And secondly, did they teach the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> that y- Yes, in the sense that it is implicit in the text that they write, in the way they talk about the Holy Spirit and include the Holy Spirit. Okay, so <clears throat> um, the... Uh, uh, it once again, there is no specific place where the Trinity is taught as such. It's not that's just true with systematic theology. You're not going to find systematic theology in the scriptures. What you're going to what systematic theology is, like theology proper and the the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of Jesus, etc., the spirit, etc., pneumatology, Christology, soteriology, theology proper. You're going to get a systematization, a systemizing of the scriptural teaching. They go into the scripture and pull out all the stuff pertaining to this particular issue, what the scripture teaches, and then they kind of put it in a whole uh, chapter so you could see the whole teaching on what the scripture says about the cross. Okay, and that's a systematic. The Bible isn't a systematic. That's the difference between systematic theology and biblical theology. Biblical theology is kind of work through the text, see what it says. Systematic sums up what all these different texts say, so you have the whole counsel of God on a particular topic, so you don't get 
imbalanced, all right? We can't expect the text to function like a systematic, all right? And uh, 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 that's, we're able to do systematics, though, because the text teaches particular things. And when you group them all together, oh, wait a minute, Trinity is a solution. It's not a problem. Mm-hmm. So... Um I, actually, something came to mind here. I actually think that this is incorrect, that they never said anything in a greeting, because I, I didn't go through every single one, but the one that came to mind was the beginning of First Peter, because here's what it says. Uh, Peter's sending the letter to those who reside as aliens, and then he says, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Mm-hmm. So right there, you've got a Trinitarian formulation. And towards the middle of this chapter, he also talks about uh, the gospel being, they preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That's not talking about the Father. That's talking about a person of the Trinity. Um, So right there in the first chapter, you have all three persons. And I would suspect... And, and I know uh, Fred Sanders has talked about this. You can go through all of the New Testament and you can look for the three-person formulation, even if it's not in the greetings. I don't know why that would matter if it's elsewhere in the letters where you can see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit described. So both of those things, I would I would say, um, just to add on to everything you said, Greg, about looking at the what the scripture says as a whole about the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the All way, right, that teaching is available at Standard Reason, just so people know. Uh, the Trinity, a solution, not a problem. Yeah, and we have it in audio form. And also, do you, don't we have a lecture of that yeah, also, Greg? Right. Yeah, that's and we talk. have, a, a, I think it's a two-part article also. The Trinity, a solution, it might be one. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you can find it under that title. All right. Thank you for sending in your questions. We'd love to hear from you again. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel. We hope to hear from you on Twitter with the hashtag SDRask. Thanks for listening. 